This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. In this podcast I talk about unfamiliar histories of familiar places, people and events. In the last episode I was talking about the imagination of hill stations in the writing of colonial British surveyors and officials. They had been looking to imagine these hill stations as a slice of their country and wished to transform these places into sanatorium or health resorts eventually though these places also came to be called the summer capital of the empire since the mid 19th century provinces and uh, indeed the whole of british empire had its capital transferred for 6 months to these hill states Queenie Pradhan had written this most interesting book called Empire in the Hills and she discussed at length the history politics and the colonial imprint over the four hill stations of Mount Abu Uti Shimla and Darjeeling In this episode I propose to talk about this uh, conversion of hill stations into the summer capital of the british empire and the associated changes and transformations um, which had been effected to to go with this change in their image and status in the colonial imagination and administrative realities Now invariably the colonial authorities in India justified their decision to move to the hills on the ground of heat efficiency and health now lord elphinstone for instance cited medical concerns as the reason for the move and the long stay in a letter to the secretary of state uh, the governor general in council wrote and i quote in the opinion of the governor general in council the migration of the local governments as now conducted did not clash with any public interests while it was conducive to efficient administration unquote now the local authorities of bengal and the northwestern provinces and avad espoused the cause of migration vociferously they also justified it in terms of potential military concerns they felt that the need to stay on in the headquarters in the plain is of less interest here and they were talking about lucknow and allahabad than in presidency towns now the issue is by no means uncontested there were objecting voices the objection of the secretary of state for instance came in the wake of objections raised in the house of commons regarding the expenditure 
incurred in such shifts. The most severe critiques of hill station uh, transfer were the non-official Europeans who lived in the plains, especially the European commercial community of Calcutta. Andrew Wilson in 1873 provides one reason for the displeasure with the hill station and I quote, according to some people, especially according to house proprietors of Calcutta, who view Shimla's attraction with natural disfavor, unquote. The property market evidently suffered for a period of six months. Sir Robert Knight, who edited The Statesman in an article, explained why the annual migration was objectionable. A because it involves a wasteful and useless expenditure of public money, b because it dislocates the work of the government, and c most important to all because by removing the government from all contact with public opinion, it induces a wholesale demoralization and loss of tone in the administration. He also admitted um, that it was an expensive affair and he made a rough estimate. The cost of the exodus was something like 5 lakh rupees. Incidentally, the officials had projected a cost of uh, 70,000 and later 3 lakhs rupees. Knight um, argued that the two months were wasted in the migration between Calcutta and Shimla and the government staff worked for only about nine months with other holidays thrown in. Despite such pressure, the phenomenon of the exodus became an institution of hill life. The first governor general to spend the summer in Shimla was Lord Amherst in 1827. Uh, Shimla was declared to be a sociable destination for the Europeans under Lord Auckland and its attraction was recorded for posterity in the memoirs of his sister, Lady Emily Eden. The annual exodus became the main feature of the hill stations. On 24th February 1840, Lord Elphinstone left Madras for Utkamand, accompanied by two invalid secretaries of the government, along with the necessary official establishment. And here is a list, that is 13 office hands and 9 peons. They were given the Bhatta allowance of rupees 533 and 4 annas per mensem. A medical officer also accompanied the governor. In 1864, the number of persons that moved from Calcutta to Simla in the month of April was 484. The imperial establishment, apart from the governor-general, included five members of the council, five secretaries of the central government, two under-secretaries, four assistant secretaries, 121 clerks, 108 servants, one accountant general, one second assistant accountant general. The governor-general's private staff comprised one private secretary, one military secretary, four aides de camp, one surgeon, one apothecary, one native doctor, 
a compounder, 12 clerks, one bandmaster, 20 bandsmen, two European servants, and 191 native servants. The composition of the imperial exodus clearly signified the bureaucratic nature of the colonial state. The expense of the Governor-General Canning in the year 1859-60, inclusive of the charges of moving secretaries and the charges on the camp, carriages, bullock train hire and cattle, presents to the Lahore Darbar and the railway and telegraph amounted to rupees 776,805. In 1860-61, Earl Canning visited Shimla and the Northwest Province at a cost of rupees 3,29,018. In 1862-63, Lord Elgin commenced to Shimla and died in November 1863 at Dharmashala. The cost of his trip was around uh, 2,5541. In 1863 64, the cost of the trip to Shimla amounted to 6,6917. 6, it was not really entirely a question of expenses. The imperial exodus had an important symbolic significance for the colonial state. It would be seen as a useful improvisation of an imperial darbar on the move, accessible to the princes en route to the hills. Exaggerated protocol and ceremony usually preceded the Viceroy's entry into Shimla or the place they visited. Lady Dufferin, for instance, recalled the reception given to her at the jailing by some very smart ladies at the station. For I myself was somewhat dusty, but they brought me such lovely bouquet of violets. Lord and Lady Minto's entourage encamped at some distance from Shimla to clear off the dust and to put on smart hats for arrival. On reaching the outskirts of the station, the Viceroy still maintained the convention of driving to his official residence in an equestrian carriage. Lord Minto recalled that from the outskirts the Viceregal couple drove in their Victoria escorted by bodyguards to the summit of the hill on which the Viceregal Lodge stood. The Viceregal tours of the 19th century laid greater emphasis on efficiency and briskness. A new perception of authority was conveyed, with strict adherence to schedule. A sense of discipline, order and structured decorum were crucial. The Viceroy's autumn tour to Mount Abu in 1890 was drafted with clockwork precision. And I quote, His Excellency will arrive at Abu Road Railway Station at 7 a.m. on Sunday, the November 9th, 1890. His Excellency would um, leave Mount Abu at 4 p.m. and Abu Road Station at 10 p.m. on Thursday, the 11th of November, 1890. The maintenance of a show of sovereignty was still 
a strategic goal of viceregal tours. The Maharao Ud Sirohi uh, of Sirohi, who, who uh, earlier commanded Mount Abu, would receive the Viceroy at Abu Road Railway Station. The native elite were drawn into the protocol of paying homage to show willing cooperation in the imperial enterprise. To buttress the claims of imperial supremacy, the Maharao of Sirohi, after taking his seat, will rise and present a Nazar of 101 gold mahars, which um, will be touched and remitted. After a short conversation, the Maharao's attendants will be presented to the Viceroy by the political officer and will offer Nazar of one gold mohar each touched and remitted. Thus, a code of conduct was established for princes and chiefs for their attendance at this darbar. With the transfer of capitals to hill stations for six months in a year, the political and economic character of these hill stations came to be completely transformed. Their being designated as summer capitals changed the direction of urban growth in these hill stations. From countrified retreats, these places became the seats of officialdom. With the transfer of the imperial machinery there in the summers, a proper administrative system was installed for the general administration of Shimla town. It was placed under the overall control of the commissioner of the Delhi division. The principal judicial official was the civil and sessions judge of Ambala, with the headquarters at Ambala and Kasoli. The day-to-day -day administration of Shimla was under the deputy commissioner, who was also the superintendent of Hill States. He was assisted by one or two assistant commissioners one of whom was put in charge of the district jail and treasury. A naib tehsildar was in charge of the Kotkhali tehsil. The deputy commissioner was given magisterial powers throughout the district. The assistant superintendent of police was assigned control of the police force. The total strength of the police force in 1881-82 was 184 people. The police stations or thanas were located at Shimla, Sabathu, Dagshai, Kasoli, and Kalka. Outposts or chalkies were located at Karkahati, Chota Shimla, Boilyuganj, and Lakkar Bazar. It was under the overall charge of the Deputy Inspector General of Police at Ambala. The district jail at the headquarters contained accommodation for 46 prisoners for a maximum period of six months. In Darjeeling, the pressure on the local administration for the maintenance of law and order and the well-being of the officials grew by the late 19th century. 
An increased volume of government business resulted from the move of the imperial and provincial establishments to the hills. A unified structure of administration was created with the deputy commissioner as the head. The Kacheri, the original office of the superintendent in the 1840s, came to accommodate the deputy commissioner, the sessions court, with the deputy magistrates and subordinate judges and the offices of the Department of Forest, Police, Income Tax, Excise and Treasury. With the increasing pace of development, the administrative machinery of the Nilgiris was also reorganized. The European staff in the Nilgiris consisted of the commissioner, the assistant commissioner, the military joint magistrate at Utkamund and the cantonment magistrate at Wellington. The High Court of Madras strongly argued for uniformity of administration. The practice of the judge of Coimbatore holding court at Utkamund to deal with the cases there was discontinued as it involved delay. Instead, the functions of the local civil judge and the magistrate were united in one office. The government of Madras, with the consent of the supreme government, invested the district magistrate of the Nilgiris with the powers of an additional sessions judge. Likewise, in Mount Abu, concern for the safety of the increasing number of Europeans necessitated administrative control over it. The great inconvenience is experienced at Mount Abu, a report said by a large portion of the community, both European and native, from the want of any generally acknowledged magisterial authority at that place. The Governor-General in Council in the arrangements made with the Rao of Sirohi in 1845 acquired power and jurisdiction within the limits of Abu and Anadra, including the road from these two places and the Abu Sanatorium to the Abu Road Railway Station and the Bazaar at Karari. After 1917, these limits were called the District of Abu. In 1863, the superintendence of the sanatorium of Abu, the political control of Sirohi and the command of the Erinpura force were united in the hands of a single officer. In 1865, the attention was called by the Bombay government to the inconvenience of this arrangement as regards the sanatorium, which was growing in importance. And it was proposed that superintendent should be entrusted to a separate officer. Now, it was not merely political reconstruction. There was a great deal of economic reconstruction as well. And the nature of economic reconstruction of these hill stations is based understood by the case of Darjeeling, to which let us now turn. By the late 19th century, the Darjeeling Hills 
were viewed as a source of immense economic potential due to the successful growth of tea in its climate and due to its situation amidst uh, the countries important for colonial commerce. The tea industry made Darjeeling part of the international economy. A large number of research studies, observations about the growth of the tea bush in Assam and Macau, and a collection of different varieties of tea bushes carried out in the early 1820s and the 1830s enabled the European tea planters to grow the tea plant under state patronage. The humid climate of Darjeeling gave the tea a unique rich flavor that was liked by the English in the metropolis. The earliest pioneers of tea in Darjeeling were Dr. A.D. Campbell, Captain Messon, and Monsieur Samuel Brian Fuchs and Merlin. By 1856, the tea industry was firmly established as a commercial enterprise. Later gardens at Jing, Ambutia, Takda, and Fubshering were established by the Darjeeling Tea Company and the gardens at Takwar and Badamtam by the Lebong Tea Company. Other gardens which were started in this early period were known as Mokaibari, Pandam and Staintal Tea Estate. Later, the Alubari Tea Garden was opened by the Karshiang and Darjeeling Tea Company and another on the Lemong Spar by the Darjeeling Land Mortgage Bank. In 1866, there were 39 gardens, each with an acreage of 256 and a half acres and an average yield of 133,000 pounds of tea. In 1870, the number of tea gardens rose to 56 covering an area of 110,000 acres on which 8,000 operatives were employed in the yield of 170,000 pounds of tea. Darjeeling was also the gateway to the Bhutan doers, which were found to be extremely useful for tea cultivation. In 1861 and 1863, Commercial treaties were signed between British India and Bhutan. Now, here we looked at why and how the British decided to transfer their summer capitals to the hill stations and the changes in the political and economic character of these hill stations that followed in terms of their administrative character and economic potential. There is plenty more about these hill towns that remain unsaid in these two podcasts. In future, it will be a pleasure to take up some of these aspects too. Till then, um, let us look forward to the next episode. Do tell us what you like or do not like about this particular episode and what else you'd like us to cover in future episodes. 
this is your friend Anirban bidding you goodbye for the History Chatter podcast. Looking forward to the next episode. Till then, do please subscribe to History Chatter in Epilogue Media website, Chio Savan, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Hub Hopper. Goodbye.